Hey everyone, Miguel here. Before we get started, I want to personally invite you to our up-and-coming Wharton FinTech conference that's taking place virtually this week on April 22nd and 23rd. It's open to everyone and you can get tickets at whartonfintechconference.com. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have over 30 panels and fireside chats. We're going to have a startup pitch competition featuring some of the hottest startups and up-and-coming fintechs. Uh, we will cover all things fintech. I'll be there. Ryan and Anchit, my co-hosts, will be there. But more importantly, we will be welcoming some of the most interesting companies and people in the industry from around the world. And it's just going to be great. So I hope you can join us at wartumfintechconference.com. I'll see you there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wartum Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Allison Lang Engel, venture partner at Greycroft, a leading venture capital firm focused on investments in the internet and mobile markets with offices in New York City and LA. Greycroft manages over a billion dollars in assets and has made over 200 investments, including some leading fintech companies like Acorns, Venmo, Flutterwave, and Public. Allison works across the Greycroft portfolio, advising companies on go-to-market strategy, execution, and sourcing new investments. She's also a proud MBA from our very own Wharton School. In this conversation, we discuss her operator background at companies like LinkedIn, Microsoft, and Stripe, a deep dive into her experience as head of marketing at Stripe, transitioning to the investing side, Greycroft's story, investment thesis, and what defines their portfolio companies, why Allison and Greycroft are bullish on the future of consumer fintech, inside stories from some of their fast-growing portfolio companies, and a whole lot more. And now I hope you enjoy this great interview with Allison Lang Engel. Allison, welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast and welcome back home as you are a Wharton alum, which means a lot for us. How are you doing today, Allison? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back engaging on the Wharton platform. So thanks for the time. And where are you joining us from? I am outside of the Bay Area right now, or outside of San Francisco. A rainy, cold Northern California day, but everything else is good. All right. Seems like the whole country is rainy because it's raining in the East Coast as well. Uh, well, Allison, maybe um, we can get started just by hearing about your background and your career because I know you've had a very interesting career across different companies. So maybe we can hear a bit about that. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. I know I've, I've had a very multivariate career path. It's very true that I think a career for many of us is certainly not linear. And that's always good to embrace the changes in, in peaks and valleys. But for me, I, I've really spent most of my career as an operator. And I started off early with a passion around media and entertainment and news and information. So I worked in sports television and media for the first six years, I had a range of roles from creative roles to sales roles. I think I was always trying to figure out that I really wanted to actually do something much more entrepreneurial, but that was just less of the world when I graduated from UCLA from undergrad. But I think that's what I was searching for. So 
I went to Wharton to do the MBA program and really to round out my liberal arts background from UCLA. And both experiences were really complimentary. And I think being at Wharton really opened my eyes and opened doors to do different things. And after Wharton, I, I went to Goldman Sachs really to bolster my finance skill set. And it was an awesome place to be for a couple of years, just kind of that background and training. I would recommend kind of the banking or consulting experience for folks looking to add to their skill set, critical thinking, analytical thinking, but it just exposes you to so many different businesses and business models. And I still use that experience today. And then after Goldman Sachs, I, I did a tour. My first marketing role was actually at HBO doing subscription marketing, which was fascinating. And now you look forward to where streaming and media is. It's like unrecognizable from when I was in that. But that was my first real marketing experience, which I loved. But I was still trying to scratch this entrepreneurial itch. So I ended up leaving HBO and joining a a venture-backed company. This was in New York City at the time called Massive Incorporated. And it was a video game advertising business. And we scaled up that business. Um, It was a very early stage company. I was a 16th person. And we sold that business to Microsoft in 2006. And Microsoft was looking to monetize the Xbox. And that was a total game changer for me, being part of an early stage company, wearing lots of different hats, working with really dynamic, fun, interesting people. And then to have an exit was amazing. And then really had an incredible experience at Microsoft. That was my first scaled leadership role. After five years at Microsoft, I joined LinkedIn before LinkedIn went public, really to help build the advertising business. And I stayed at LinkedIn for almost six years. And that was just career-defining for me to be part of the LinkedIn leadership team, learn from Jeff and all of the execs at LinkedIn who are just world-class at what they do. And so we helped scale the advertising business, which was frankly, not a major focus at the time the company went public, but is now a multi-billion dollar business and and doing phenomenally well. And and more importantly, creating a lot of value in the world of advertising. And then after LinkedIn, I moved over to Stripe as the first marketing leader and CMO at Stripe, which was a, a totally different trajectory and audience and platform for me. And we can spend more talking about Stripe but that was just you know, another inflection point for me to, to learn a developer go-to-market, be around the incredible team and innovators and thinkers at Stripe. And I'm kind of forever changed from that experience. Um, and then most recently, I'm here at Graycroft, which is a seed-to-growth venture capital firm. And we invest in internet technologies and businesses around the world, both from both kind of an early stage and also later stage. So that's a long journey. I'm trying to make it as concise as possible. But I'm so grateful for all the experiences I've had. It's informed very much who I am today. Oh, thank you for that background. Now, Allison, we, we are talking just days after this massive, massive new round of Stripe. So, you know, I got to ask you about Stripe, right? I mean, of course, there, yes. <laughs> you were there at a, at a time where the company was just growing extremely fast. It continues to grow extremely fast. But just tell us about that experience. What do you think makes the company and, and the culture and everything they do so special? Wow. I mean, there's so many things that are special and unique about Stripe. I mean, it is it is not only a category-defining company. It is really a globally defining generational business on so many levels. And I think it really starts with how the entire team and company is just deeply bought into the mission to increase the GDP of the internet. And to do that because that is good for the world. Like Stripe is the ultimate enabling technology, enabling others, businesses large and small, 
to transact, to sell, to take the friction out of their businesses in ways that you could argue no other platform and technology has ever delivered to the world. And so I think what's possible for Stripe and, and where it could go is is really limitless. You know, and at the core of that, I think the ethos of the culture is really putting users and the experience with the product first. And to do that from Patrick and John and the whole team, just being deeply thoughtful at every turn when you interact with Stripe. So thoughtful about every experience in the product, every experience you might have with support and service, you know, any interaction you have, you feel the intention behind what they build and what they do. And the craftsmanship and kind of the bar that Stripe holds for what they put out in market I think is just exceptional and stands out certainly in my experience. And I think another underpinning to the culture, again, is just being deeply thoughtful, very cerebral and taking the long game. It's an extremely hard running, of course, company. You don't achieve what Stripe has done by not pressing hard and, and being extremely ambitious. But that said, there's a lot of patience. If you're going to try to rewire the internet and build an infrastructure that connects and powers the world, it takes a lot of time. And it's also extremely difficult to do. There are always challenges. There are snags. There are major hurdles to overcome that take months, quarters, and years to do. And so I think this like incredible endurance and patience they've had to get to where they are is another key aspect of what's really remarkable about the company. Some people say it's going to be the next Google, right? In, in the sense that breath, and scale. Would you agree with that? Well, I think I think Google and Facebook, I don't have the latest data. I'm sure someone at Wharton has. I think it's like 60 or 70% of the digital advertising share. It sits between Google and Facebook. I mean, the payments landscape is so vast. And so there are many significant players. You know, you can look at good cap of Square, you can PayPal, Adyen, Visa, MasterCard. I mean, there are so many companies at significant scale that touch consumers every minute of the day. So I don't know if it's quite the same analogy, right, in terms of market share concentration, but in terms of the impact, yeah, I mean, it, it can be akin to that. You know, when you're a small business and you're trying to get to market more quickly, you choose Stripe as the best solution to do that, right? Atlassian chose Stripe to work on their subscription products. I think when you see that momentum happening from every scale of business and increasingly now Stripe completing its footprint around the world, being able to reach businesses and consumers in every corner of the world, which is what fintech does, the impact and the enormity, it's incredible and it's far-reaching. So let's talk about that transition, right? Going from operator to investor, that is something fairly recent for you. Uh, I'm guessing it's a different skill set and, and there's obviously you're relying on some great experience, but you've also had to learn a couple of new things. Maybe talk about that uh, transition. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think there are definitely some things that are quite different, but I think the Venn diagram of what it takes to be great as an operator and an investor, I think there's more of an overlap than it might seem kind of on the surface. And, you know, and for me specifically, my passion has always lied in company building. I think that's why I was moving around earlier in my career between these large media companies because that's what I knew. And that was my entry point in my early career and had great experiences in media. But I think I was searching for this role as a company builder, right? And couldn't quite, took me a little while to figure that out. Entrepreneurship is much more center stage now than it was kind of 20 years ago. And so 
I think the skill set to help and be part of an early stage company, which I was at Massive, and then work in later stage businesses, which obviously is Stripe and LinkedIn, they have different needs. But since I've lived in both worlds, I think I can bridge and help founders and entrepreneurs in ways that that's different from kind of longtime investors. And so I think at the end of the day, as an operator, you generally are, your lens is like, a hundred miles deep, but you go very deep into your company, your product set, your differentiator, your customers. And of course you have a lens for the world around you and your customers, but you generally have a more narrow focus. And obviously as an investor, unless you're very sector specific, which investing is moving towards more sector focus, you generally, you know, you might be a hundred miles wide, right? And fewer miles deep. It's just, there's much more breadth to the role. You're just covering a huge range of companies and sectors and geographies. And so that's the lens that's, that was, you know, the bigger adjustment for me was kind of covering more topics and more sectors and more industries than you do as an operator. But I think at the end of the day, being able to identify opportunities, put a structure to them, understand the prioritization of them. There are a lot of things that overlap, I think, between operating and investing. Of course, there are nuances to finance and capitalization and capital structures that as an investor, you spend a lot more time on than you might as an operator. But I think you're seeing more and more operators certainly fill out boards and certainly move into different phases of investing from early stage VC to late stage VC to even working in private equity. Because I think the operator lens is really critical. At the end of the day, the goal is to build an incredibly successful business and, and partner with the, the leadership team and the companies to do so. And so I think if you can bridge that gap, I have found it to be really fun and rewarding to have the operator background and bring that to the companies that I spend time with. So we talked to quite a few venture capitalists on the show. And of course, everyone's going to have a unique focus and, and point <laughs> of view. <laughs> so maybe... Tell us about Greycroft. I mean, I got to say, I, I follow and, and admire one of your founders, Alan Patrickoff, right? Sure. He's built some amazing things and he's just a great investor. But uh, yeah, we'd love to learn more about Greycroft. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a special firm for many different reasons. So Greycroft was founded back in 2006, so 15 years ago. I believe in April of this year, it'll be 15 years, and was founded by Alan and his co-founders, and Dana Settle based in Los Angeles and Ian Sigalo based in New York. So the three of them really co-founded and started the firm. And kind of the ground they've covered in, in 15 years is amazing. And the momentum of the last couple of years, and even coming through the pandemic has been really strong too. So we're really a seed to growth venture firm. We're really active and we might be more well-known initially for seed and series A investments, where we first kind of raised our initial funds. We since then, though, have been really spending a simple amount of time and capital in the growth stage, so kind of series B and beyond, and have a dedicated team and, and funds for that. So we're currently investing out of our sixth early stage fund and then our third growth fund. And the team for us, we have about 200 active portfolio companies. So like I said, we cover a lot of ground and we do have some specific sector focus areas, but, but we are quite broad. And that's created a really interesting opportunity for us to build partnerships within the portfolio. About 100 of our companies are enterprise and B2B focus, and the other 100 are consumer. And there's just a lot of interesting things that can happen within the community within our portfolio. And that's been a, 
an, an amazing thing to see and, and something that we really turbocharged through the pandemic to connect our founders and have people have support through this hard time. And I think for us, the nature of what we do, it's not just the what of the investing, but it's how we do it. We are deeply aligned with founders from day one. We have a very flexible and collaborative approach to what we do. We don't come to the table with extremely rigorous demands on ownership sizes or board seats, or we really start the conversation with what's right for the company and what's the right structure, who are the right investors, who are the right operators around the table. And so it really resonated with me because if you're an operator, you live by team collaboration. It it is completely about the team's success. Great companies are built by great teams working together. And sometimes venture capital can be more of a lone wolf, a deal chasing business. And there's always an element to that. But our approach is very team-based. And like I said, as an operator and the former CMO, that was really critical to me. I'm used to collaborating with people all day long around the world. And so kind of replicating that within our firm, you know, I think the founders really feel that you kind of get the whole firm to support you. We have a huge range of expertise investing and operating. And so being able to bring that into our companies is really powerful. And it's a really warm, inviting group of people. It's very familial and really open in nature. And so there's cultural aspects of Greycroft that really emulate what our team is about and the type of environment that Dana and Ian want to bring to the investing that we do. And I think the entrepreneurs in our portfolio see that as a, as a pretty differentiated partnership, a trusted partnership. And so we're really proud of that. Yeah, I was, I was looking at your list of your portfolio and happy to say we've had some of your fintech companies. I mean, starting with Acorns. Oh, great. Um, yes. <laughs> So after 15 years, you got to have some great institutional memory when it comes to making the decision and pulling the trigger when it comes to an investment. What would you say defines those companies that actually join your portfolio? It's a great question. I mean, I think it really starts with that founder and entrepreneurial partnership and relationship. For some of our companies, The initial vision and perspective from the founder and entrepreneur is what played out. But for many companies, as you know, and you probably discovered, Miguel, throughout the podcast, the initial vision and plan, the end outcome five or 10 years later can look quite different. Um, And the founders and entrepreneurs pivot based on new information, based on changes in the landscape. And that's what makes entrepreneurs exceptional at what they do, right? You can pivot and evolve your business model. And so... We've seen that as well. And so the vision, the grit, the resilience, the ability to build teams, the ability to make hard decisions, manage through ambiguity, all of those kind of classic entrepreneurial traits, you can't understate them enough. Like those are kind of defining aspects of success. So that's kind of the first point. I think the second point, of course, is the market, thinking through the dynamics of the market, understanding what is the runway, what's the addressable market, what segments are you serving? Those are all kind of classic investing frameworks, but they're there for a reason. Like you have to deeply understand your end users. And we look for founders who have so much empathy and ideally experience walking in the shoes of the users they're trying to solve for. You think about the Stripe team, they were building for developers. They brought the table experience as developers um, themselves. And so there's just so much empathy for that experience and who you're building for. And I think, yes, you can learn a segment, but if you come from that segment, there's even so much more authenticity in the product and the go-to-market. So that's another piece. And I think the last piece, for sure, it goes back to company building. 
being able to hire and attract amazing talent and great founders find ways to build their team, their talent magnets. People are willing to leave other opportunities on the table and come join their vision and mission and and be committed to that. And I think you have to have an outsized commitment to an early stage company to make it work and have it thrive. And I think those are the traits that we absolutely look for. And, And people who are willing to collaborate, right? And take feedback. This is a long journey. I think one of the things that for me was such an interesting perspective when I first joined Graycroft was that for many of our companies, we have been 10 plus year investors, right? And we're so proud to be on that journey along the way. That's a long partnership. I mean, as an operator, there are people now staying in tech companies longer, but people didn't used to stay in a career or in a certain role for 10 years. And so we're with these same folks for 10 plus years. And we deeply value that partnership and it can have ups and downs, but we're in it for the long haul. And I think that commitment to one another is a really important part of the equation. How about internationally? I mean, I I know you've made a number of global investments. I mean, you have Flutter Wave coming out of Nigeria. And by the way, GB was on the show as well. I see some investments in in Asia. What's your take on the global landscape? Yeah, it's fascinating. And we want to do more here. And it's actually something I really take away from my Wharton experience, spending time in the immersion program in South America um, has really helped me bridge to founders in Brazil and Argentina. So I'm so thankful for that experience from Wharton. But you're right. I mean, Flutterwave is a super exciting company, really serving the needs as a payment network in Nigeria and Africa. We also had Aka go public last summer, which is really an SMB merchant platform in China. And so for us, it's really been about thinking through the countries that are going through the seismic change and then who are the companies and frankly, the entrepreneurial leaders who can navigate that change. The world is so complex coming out of, well, we're still in the pandemic, but, but emerging from the pandemic. And then you layer on top of that the really interesting, but at times really high hurdles that happen in emerging markets. Like It takes really special leaders to carry a vision through that and manage through changing demands from consumers, changing regulatory landscapes. And so I think those are two really special companies for us. And we continue to build out our network and evaluate companies around the world. It's actually a really important perspective to have as investors. So that's the international landscape. How about maybe within fintech, are there a couple of verticals or, or areas of fintech that you or, or Graycroft as a firm, uh, you know, you, you're paying particular attention to? Absolutely. And we are moving to a bit more of a sector-specific orientation. We still are quite broad in what we do, and we think there's a lot of value we bring as investors with a really broad view of the world. But certainly within every sector of every part of investing, every company has a whole series of competitors, and you have to really understand that landscape, not only to invest, but to be helpful. So we are kind of narrowing our focus in, in some ways. And so we generally have a kind of a two-sided team that was focused on both consumer fintech, which is where I'm spending a lot of time. And then I have a partner who's also spending time on the enterprise side. And so we really collaborate across the board. And I also work very closely with two other partners focused on consumer internet and health and digital, because as we see across all of our consumer companies, payments right, are a core part of that experience. And actually, that was something that we talked a lot about at Stripe was how can you build a payment experience that's a competitive advantage, right? It's not just a cost item 
for our company, but how is that product experience and that payment experience something that becomes a delightful user experience? And that's been another part of Stripe's success. We also collaborate very collectively, very much so across the firm on these themes. And I think as it relates to on the B2B and enterprise side, embedded finance and all of the technologies around that are really important trends that we think are, are macros that are here to stay. On the consumer side, I think a couple areas are, are really interesting. One, you know, we're spending a lot of time just parsing the different segments of fintechs, reaching buyers where they are, which I think is one of the most important and exciting aspects of the growth of fintech is you can have banks and services and products, right? Reaching people who have been underbanked, reaching people who might be freelancers or solopreneurs who have a distinct set of needs, reaching more mature small businesses, reaching students. And so we'll see how the scale plays out when you get into more defined segments. But wearing a marketing hat, you have to meet your users where they are and then you create incredible loyalty and engagement and advocacy when you do that. And so the segmentation within consumer fintech, I think is really fascinating and and here to stay. The other part that I think is so important to this and is a passion of mine is just increasing financial access for people. There are so many people who are left out of financial services and have always been and businesses that don't run as efficiently as they could because they just do not have the right financial stack. And so how are financial services helping people as individuals and businesses achieve better outcomes, move faster, work smarter, and gain more transparency and control over their financial situation? And I think technology is so uniquely suited to do that. And I would say the last point for us is certainly the democratization in the world of finance, making it accessible, helping everyone achieve their outcomes. That certainly was our thesis going into public, which I'm happy to chat about too, which is such an exciting company to be a part of and democratizing access to the stock market. For many people and small businesses, the financial arena was just lacked a lot of transparency. It was hard to figure out the value exchange and the fees you were paying for And it's just not that user-friendly. And I think kind of the barriers coming down and kind of leveling that playing field is helping companies innovate more, which is great for their end consumers, but is also helping them really understand their financial position, which is crucial. Yeah, actually, my co-host, Ryan Zauk, he sat down with Leif Abraham from Public and Public and, and other wealth management platforms have been on the news, right? And I guess it's uh, perfect timing to talk about because you also sit on, on the board of public. And one yes. thing that comes to mind is the fact that public introduced recently this concept of tipping, right? Mm-hmm. For, for every trade, yes. right? Instead of the controversial payment for order flow. So take us through that decision. It, I'm sure there's there's some stories. Maybe whatever you can share, we'd love to hear. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's fascinating. And yeah, working with Life and Yannick, who are the co-founders of Public, and we seeded the company and, and actually helped bring together the early team. And it's just a phenomenal group of folks that are also extremely committed to the mission that they have and phenomenal at designing really user-friendly experiences that bring a community to investing and community around investing that has never existed before. And I, I should have said that as another facet of 
the thesis that I have is just that for anything consumer related now, I think community just has to be at the core and we can spend more time on that, but having a community around the product and the experience, I think is one of the more defensible things a company can create and, and, and public has done that uniquely. Yeah. So back for payment for order flow, which was kind of rooted in the commission-free trading model, right, has really dramatically increased um, accessibility, which is great. It's broadened the investor class. Um, but with the innovation of commission-free trading, right, some other channel challenges really have to be addressed. And so without the commission fees, the brokerages lean on other forms of revenue to sustain and grow their business. And payment for order flow has been that practice in which a brokerage firm receives rebates on trades routed through its clearing firm. And so as of in February of this year, public became officially free of the payment for order flow. And it was really about committing to our community, really to better align our financial goals with the best interests of our community of investors. And for us, that community is really about transparency and the culture of financial services as an industry, unfortunately, has never been that famous for transparency. And we think it's time for that to change. And we wanted to kind of remove this aspect and create an opportunity where we can introduce an optional tipping feature for customers to use when they make a trade. So now our members can choose to add a tip to their trade to support our commitment to not participate in payment for order flow. And they can choose to execute their trades without commission fees or tipping if they choose that as well. And I just think this is just one example of the paradigm shift that I think the modern fintech companies are driving, which is let's create transparency on what we think is an inefficient or kind of a broken way to do something. Let's remove that barrier and let the user make the choice on the value exchange they receive and what they're willing to pay for that. And in most cases, it turns out that consumers do appreciate, deeply appreciate the transparency and they're willing to return that in the form of a tip or another form of value exchange. So it's a pretty incredible dynamic shift, right? Of you're kind of turning some of the keys over to the end user to make a decision to kind of turn the dials in the way that they want to, which has never been part of the conversation, frankly, in most industries, but especially in financial services. So it's, I think it's kind of one of many of the types of innovation and frankly, challenging the status quo and the business model, which is why being part of these earlier stage companies is such an exciting place to be. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see who follows and who stays with payment for order flow. And Allison, how about the next step or the next few years? I mean, I think for me, um, yeah, I have loved this change and kind of this new branch off of the trunk of my career and, and because it really allows me to be, you know, so close to companies and just these phenomenal thinkers and technologists, which inspires me every day, but also continuing to learn and grow as an investor and, and gain that skill set. And I think I'm an inherent optimist. I've, I've always felt like a, a glass half full person. And I think you you have to be an optimist if you're going to be in investing or a venture capitalist and really be entrusting so much of improvement in the world of technology. Like that has to be, I think, core to who you are. And, and so it's such a good fit for me. And, and I think, as I mentioned before about the passion I have for financial technology, like we're just able to bring so many more people into the financial system, create products that meet 
different needs. You know, you don't have to have a one size fits all rigid structure that excludes so many people. There's so much innovation happening and there are so many more people who can be included in the financial system. And when you think about, I don't know how many billions what the latest smartphone count is globally, but certainly in the billions, that is now your wallet, right? That is now your banking system. And so you think about what potential that brings to the world. It literally has an impact on every human everywhere in the world. And I think that's why we're all so excited about the state of financial technology. And I actually wonder, and I think Miguel, in a few years, I'm not sure we even call it fintech. I think it's just going to be technology that you use. Like, I just think it's so ubiquitous that it, I don't know if it will have, I hope it doesn't have the same category. I think it's just how we're going to run our lives. And for me, I just hope to continue on this path as an investor and have the opportunity to be part of these really category defining companies. It's an incredible place to be. Yeah, particularly if every company is going to integrate a, a fintech or finance product or some sort of facet, then everything is just going to be tech, right? Right. I mean, that's it's funny. Even as a marketer where you are trained to learn how to brand things and give things a name, I think at the end of the day, this I don't know, we'll see. We'll come back in a few years and see if the moniker of fintech is still here or if it's just technology that is part of your financial life and, and hopefully contributes to not only kind of financial goals, but really to financial wellness and, and financial inclusion. Because inclusion. I think you have to have that facet, I think, for all of us to feel like it's living up to its potential. Awesome. How about uh, some of your hobbies, right? We, we love to talk just uh, a, <laughs> bit of, a bit of outside of your professional life, which I know is extremely active and you're busy, but uh, any favorite hobbies out there? Yes. Well, in addition to all of my work we do at Greycroft and our amazing team here, my other major role in my life is as a mom to two school-age girls, So, which is the certainly the best part of my life, my family life. And so always try to be super present and engaged with them, which is great. And that keeps us busy. Um, in addition to everything else. And, and for me, I grew up as a competitive athlete. I'm a total weekend warrior now. Maybe warrior is too strong of a word. I'm a weekend dabbler, but I just love to be outside. I love to be in the outdoors, skiing, hiking, paddleboarding. So any chance I get, I feel like a new person, you know, when I can be outdoors. And that's been a big part of the really feeling that in the pandemic. Like I really miss people. I'm a people person. I've always been a team builder. And so finding some of that energy, frankly, and kind of clearing your mind just by being getting outside and not being completely sucked into email and work and, and everything else going on. There's so many exciting things happening in the world, but I think kind of understanding the need to really be present, get outside and get some fresh air and fresh yourself physically is so important for me. I don't always do it as consistently as I would like, but that's a really important facet of my, of my personal life for sure. Nothing like the outdoors, particularly <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Allison, cannot thank you enough for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome back, right? To uh, Yeah, thank you. Uh, Great. <laughs> there, there's an open invitation for you to stop by. Uh, you know, not, not just the podcast, but also campus. I'm sure you've done it many times since graduation, but... Uh, I would love to do that. I'd li I so enjoyed my time in Philadelphia. So yes, once we are traveling a bit more, and that's something I've really missed in the pandemic too, is we, Greycroft is, we're dual headquartered between Los Angeles and New York. Obviously, our, we have been largely working from home, but 
can't wait to get back into the flow with with all of you at Wharton and everyone else that we work with around the country. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 